Good fight. That's the name of our summer real men Bible study. We'll be going verse by verse through 1 Timothy. Uh, you and me up here in the mountains, real informal, casual, 12 weeks looking at an older man named Paul, building up and uh, investing in a younger man named Timothy, teaching him how to be a man of God and fight a good fight. And I'll tell you, in a day when the uh, world has lost its mind and everything's going to hell, a uh, few men need to learn how to fight. I'll see you guys online this summer as we study 1 Timothy, the good fight. All right, guys, welcome back to uh, Real Men uh, Summer Series. Uh, good fight. We're going through a New Testament book called 1 Timothy. Paul, like a spiritual father, writing to Timothy, like a spiritual son, uh, pulling him up to the next level of masculinity and responsibility, something we all need. And uh, we will... Um, get back to weekly large gatherings in the fall. We're taking a little bit of a break for uh, the summer. Um, but I just want to sit down and open the Bible and see if I could be helpful. And you guys have been tuning in in the hundreds of thousands. So thank you for that. And as we're going through First Timothy, um, last week we looked at serve saints. And I just want to pick one thing up before we jump ahead. The difference between or one of the differences between a boy and a man is serving. Um, last week we looked at the fact that if you really want to mature in your faith and have a healthy marriage and family, uh, serve together. And when you're a boy, you get served. And when you're a man, you serve others. When you're a boy, someone feeds you. When you're a man, you feed someone else. When you're a boy, somebody houses you. When you're a man, you house somebody else. When you're a boy and, uh, you need something, you cry until somebody provides it. When you're a man, there's no crying. You got to provide it for yourself. And so what we're seeing is an entire generation of boys who can shave and they won't make that pivot from being served to served. And if you will make that pivot and the sooner you make that pivot from being um, one who is served to one who is serving is the shortcut to going from boyhood to manhood. That being said, serving is devoting your life to Jesus and who and what you're for. This week, command number seven is deny demons, and it's who and what you're against. If you're going to be for Jesus, you have to be against those things that are anti-Christ. And we're in 1 Timothy 3.14 uh, through chapter 4, verse 5. And what has happened is... Uh, in the church in that day, like the church in our day, we've already dealt with false teaching and apostasy and the progressive movement and the woke joke folk and the lesbaterians and the transgender rainbow bishops and the fool's parade, you know, headed to Sheol. But what we're talking about really ultimately is something called syncretism. And so syncretism is where God is doing something and then Satan is seeking to pollute that which God made pure. I'll give you an analogy. Um, I, I like to hike. I like to go up in the woods and I like to hike. And uh, some years ago, there was one of my favorite hikes. I had a little uh, two-door old school Jeep. It was a manual six-speed. Um, and it was um, back when they had the old straight six motors before Chrysler bought them and dropped the garbage minivan motors in. And it was a, it was a great little Jeep. And it was small enough that I could take it on snowmobile paths uh, during the summer after the snow had melted. And I could get way up into the mountains and way um, 
way off the beaten path and I could find rivers and creeks and waterfalls and hikes and all kinds. I just loved it. And I'll never forget, I found this one snowmobile path that would take me way up in the mountains and then I would hike up and it was this giant pristine river, completely pure, no homes around it, no businesses, very isolated, completely pure. And it was one of my favorite places to go to practice solitude and pray and read and hike. Well, I went there one day and the whole river was just muddy and silty. I had never seen it like that. And um, usually I'd, you know, hike in the water, swim in the water if it was a hot day, you know, wash my face in the water. Not on this day. It's, uh, it's polluted. It's covered with silt and mud. So I start hiking upstream trying to figure out what the heck is going on uh, with the river. And upstream, there was one small tributary coming down from the mountains. And uh, I don't know what caused it, but it was a muddy river, a lot of silt. It was not a large river. It was more like a small channel. But as soon as it um, entered into the larger river, the tributary polluted it. And so upstream, a little bit of what got into the river river, uh, polluted everything downstream. And this is how Satan and the demonic work. Um, God establishes the church, Bible teaching, leadership, life in the spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan tries to get some side tributary, oftentimes possibly even small, false teaching, moral compromise, deception, progressive agenda, social pressure, to what? To get that which is impure to invade and pollute that which is pure, uh, the church and the gospel. That's what syncretism is. And part of what Paul is doing in writing to Timothy, he's saying, here's purity and here's impurity. Here's what the gospel is supposed to be. And here's how Satan wants to pollute the message of the Bible. And so he's going to tell us two things before Jesus and against everything else. (laughs) That's what he's going to tell us. And a lot of times guys will struggle because you're like, well, I want to be for everyone. You can't be. I want to be for everything. You can't be. Um, If Jesus is doing something and Satan is doing something, there is a fight and you need to pick a side. And so what he's talking about here is upstream, are there any tributaries that you're allowing to flow into your life? moral compromise, social pressure, bad doctrine, false teaching, your own addiction that is polluting the flow of God's spirit in your life. So first he says, start with Jesus and stay with Jesus. He says, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through uh, verse uh, 16, he says, "Um, I hope to come to you soon. So Paul and Timothy are separated. This is why he writes the letter. And sometimes guys will read 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus where Paul's mentoring someone and young guys will be like, I'm a Timothy. I just need to find my Paul. And I wish he'd take me out to coffee every Tuesday and talk about how I feel. And like, that's a girlfriend, dude, not a mentor. And uh, what happens here is Paul and Timothy are not in the same town. They're not getting coffee every Tuesday. Uh, Paul writes a letter because they can't meet together. And so if you want a godly older male mentor, you're probably not going to meet with him all the time. And some of the time it's going to be a call, a text, an email. In their day, it was a letter just giving you directives for the next season. But if you're a grown man, you need coaching. And if you're a baby, you need caring. Paul is not there to carry Timothy. He's writing a letter to coach him. 
I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, if I don't make it in time, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And the point is this, Christianity is not just what you believe, it's how you behave. Um, it is convictions that you have, and then it's also a lifestyle that you live. For those of you guys who are a bit more nerdy, theological, you love reading dead guys, you're into footnotes, you like Latin words, and uh, you tend to be maybe smart and articulate and like to argue, you will try and turn Christianity into primarily, if not ex exclusively, a series of beliefs. You want to make everything theological, not practical. You want to argue about things rather than do things. And so Christianity is two things. It's belief and it's behavior. It is doctrinal conviction, and it's also practical lifestyle. And so some of you guys who are hearing this, you're going to be more what I call Romans Christians. You like the theology and you like the beliefs and the doctrines. Some of you are going to be more Proverbs Christians. You're more practical, you're more relational, and you're more action-oriented rather than idea-driven. And to be a man of God, you need to be both. And what Paul is doing here, he's talking to Timothy not only about belief, but also behavior. And so you've got to ask yourself, am I more of a Romans Christian or am I more of a Proverbs Christian? If I'm more of a Romans Christian, I need to get more practical and focus on behavior, relationship, and getting results from my actions. If you're a Proverbs Christian, you could be more susceptible to false teaching and false doctrine and bad Bible teachers because you're not well-read and deeply thoughtful. And so it's both and, and guys need each other. But he says how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, great indeed, uh, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he quotes what's probably an ancient hymn. He, speaking of Jesus, so start with Jesus, stay with Jesus. If you want to keep things clean, just stay close to Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. We'll talk about all of this. Vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. So first, what he says is, uh, Timothy, uh, for you to be a man of God, you need to know, one, how to behave, and number two, as a member of the church. And so what he says is that um, God's people need the church. And I want to say this, I believe in online ministry, but I believe that you can only do church locally and relationally, not digitally and translocally. And so here at Real Faith, we love getting Bible teaching out and I like to help, but you need a local church. And at the end of the day, most of the New Testament is written to churches and the letters that are written to individuals like 1 Timothy are written to individuals to help them lead local churches. And so the, the point is this, you're not biblical unless you're relational, and you can't obey the Bible unless you're in the church, because the Bible was written to help people do life together as God's family, the church. So he uses these two great analogies for the church. Number one, it is the household of God. Now, God doesn't need a house, but his people do. And so the household of God is the father's house, the local church, and it's for the family of God. And I love this motif that when rightly functioning, a local church is like an extended family. Older men are like fathers, Paul says. Older women are like mothers. Younger women are like sisters. Younger men are like brothers. And so in a world where church um, 
is less attended than ever. It's more needed than ever because in our age of broken family, so many people, parents got divorced, family you know, spread across the country or countries. You're no longer in relationship with generations ahead of you. Church family becomes a secondary level of support. It helps uh, you learn and grow by drafting and modeling those who go ahead of you and are older and more seasoned. And it allows you to pull up the next generation and love and serve those who are younger than you. So I love the analogy. He says that the church is, is like God's household. And he calls it um, the uh, buttress and pillar of the truth. And, and what he's talking about here, he's talking about architecting terms like laying a foundation and then your load-bearing walls. And what he's saying is um, the truth is built in the church and it upholds the church. And so when you don't have the truth, you don't have the church. And when you do have the church, God builds the church around the truth. It's like the foundation and the load-bearing walls. And so ultimately, you've got to ask yourself, number one, am I in a local church? Number two, is it functioning like a church family where there are relationships and people care for one another? And number three, is the foundation and the load-bearing wall spiritually and relationally, is it the truth? Like, is this a Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching, truth-committed church? And in our day, let's just be honest, there are too few that can say yes wholeheartedly. And then he goes on to quote an ancient hymn, and it's about Jesus. And so you need a mentor. That's what Timothy has. You need a church. That's what Timothy has. That church needs uh, the truth. Um, That's what Paul is saying. And that ultimately here they're quoting an ancient hymn of worship. And uh, it's good to worship in church. Your soul needs it. And most men don't worship and don't worship well. But let me say this, your soul needs to worship like your lungs need to breathe. Um, You just need it. You were built for worship, and as you sing and worship, God will start to do uh, great work in your soul, and he'll start to heal you so you can become a healthier man. So he's quoting an ancient hymn here that probably rhymes, and it's all about Jesus. And here's the big idea. It's always all about Jesus. And if you want to keep it clean and you want to keep it pure and you want to be in the flow of God's will for your life, start with Jesus and stay with Jesus. It says that he came in the flesh. That's Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, God becoming a man, risen by the Spirit, that Jesus was dead, but we now have the same power that raised Christ from the dead, says he was seen by angels, which... uh, did happen before he entered human history, says he was surrounded by angels and worshiped in glory, for example, in the days of Isaiah. And then he came and angels showed up at the birth of Jesus to proclaim uh, that he would be born and that he was born. And then angel was present at the tomb of Jesus after he raised from the dead. So what God is talking about here is Jesus is vindicated, not just by human witness, but by divine witness says he was proclaimed among the nations. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is for all people's times and places, that uh, politicians come and go, but Jesus is for everyone, everywhere, in every time. And he's talking here about the universality of the need of Jesus. And so what he's saying is there's not a Jesus for your race. There's not a Jesus for your nation. There's not a Jesus for your gender. There's not a Jesus for your sexuality. There's not a Jesus for your political affiliation. There's one Jesus, and he doesn't change himself to accommodate anyone. 
Everyone needs to change themselves to receive and accept and surrender and submit to him. It's a big statement about the global, eternal, unchanging lordship of Christ. And it says he was believed on in the world. And the question is, do you believe in Jesus? And then it says he was taken up in glory. And so today, Jesus is in glory. He's not in humility. He's alive and well. He's ruling and reigning in heaven. He's still surrounded by angels. He's still ruling over the church of which he is the head. And he is still advancing uh, the kingdom of God of which he is the sovereign Lord and King. And so he begins by saying, don't lose sight of what matters. The church, the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then if you're going to be for Jesus, you need to be against those things that are anti-Christ. All right, guys, Pastor Mark here letting you know about the latest book, New Days, Old Demons. It's a prophetic word against pathetic wokeness. Uh, You guys understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Hopefully it is on sale. If not, it's coming out very, very soon. Would appreciate your prayers as we punch a lot of people and things in the mouth. And if it's a help, get a copy. And this is where you as a man are particularly responsible because you're responsible for yourself. If you're married and head of your home, you're responsible for your wife. If you are a father, God is going to hold you accountable and responsible first and foremost for the well-being of your children. If you're a leader in business or in ministry or church, you have additional responsibility. And what Paul is saying here is this, that uh, not only is Jesus at work in the world, so are powerful demonic forces that are seeking to undo everything God is seeking to do, trying to refute every truth with a lie and trying to uh, counteract every obedience with disobedience. Here's what he says, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through uh, 5. Now the Spirit expressly says, the Holy Spirit, that in latter times, some translations will say the last days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. That's demonic spirits. The teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars. This is strong language. Uh, whose consciences are seared. And he gives some examples who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything uh, created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So let me unpack this briefly. Okay, the when is latter times or last days. That generally refers to the period of human history between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Now, it has been a few thousand years, and I don't know if it's going to be a few thousand more years or a few dozen more minutes. I don't know. What we do know is the major event yet to unfold in human history is the second coming of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal sentencing to heaven and hell, and the ushering in of the kingdom of God with the curse lifted. And so what he's saying is, if you're living in that time, these are the last days, these are the latter times. That's the time in which we live. What he says to watch out for and be careful of is this, those who, quote, depart from the faith. These are apostates. Apostates are people who start in the faith and then depart from the faith, like Judas Iscariot. In addition, um, this would include people in our day that are called the deconstructionists. 
the deconstructionists are Satan's way of platforming and weaponizing those who, quote, depart from the faith. Oftentimes they will use words like discernment or accountability, or they'll talk about progressivism or enlightenment or bringing the church into the future, unshackling the Bible from patriarchy and misogyny and history. And ultimately, um, he says, uh, these people are insincere liars with seared consciences. Now, they get book deals, but they don't get blessing from God. They get platform, but they don't get God's anointing. And in our day, these people who depart from the truth, these are the former Christians. These are the Christians who grew up, and now they're criticizing the church that they grew up in, or they're criticizing um, the teaching that they received, or they're deconstructing their faith. Uh, these people are now legion. And they are always platformed by the media and critics of Christianity. Um, I was just reading uh, accidentally. I saw a Newsweek story. And it was saying, for example, not all Christians are pro-life. And it takes this one pastor of a small church that nobody has ever heard of, who is a very strong advocate of abortion and talks about how you know, there's this massive new wave of murdering children in the church among God's people, which is just not true. It's a lie. Um, but it's someone who was pro-life and then they became pro-death. So then they become promoted. And that's the way of our world. And so if you're a young guy, you need to know if you grew up in the church, but you attack the church, if you have some bitterness, some church hurt, maybe you grew up in a legalistic environment, maybe your parents were a little too tight with the rules, uh, maybe the homeschooling co-op was a little narrow, maybe your parents didn't let you enjoy technology, um, maybe you were told to kiss dating goodbye. Um, if you're one of those people and you grow up with bitterness in your soul and you depart from the faith, you are going to see Satan, demons, and evildoers cheer you. Um, but not God. And so the key is, even if you have church hurt or a bad experience growing up in a Christian environment, you've got to sift through it and say, okay, these things were good. These things were not good. And what you don't need to do is depart from the faith. You need to return to the truth. That's what you need to do. So he talks about the church being the bulwark and uh, pillar of the truth. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. And so what you need to do, you need to, you know, walk in the spirit of forgiveness, you need to open the Bible, get back to a Bible teaching church, and sort of sift through your upbringing and say, these are the things I want to keep. And these are the things I need to throw away, because they were not for God. But the worst thing you can do is deconstruct your faith and depart from the truth. He then says, why? Why do people do this? And let me say this now, the red letter Christians, the progressive Christians, uh, the pajama hadin of, um, you know, accountability watch bloggers and all the other fools parade. Uh, here's why they do it. They are, quote, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. It's demonic. It's demonic to be attacking people who are teaching the Bible. It's demonic to be falsely accusing people who are Christian leaders of things that they are not guilty of. And so you need to know this, behind error is evil. And you've got to be very careful because there's something in, especially a young man who likes the fight, who likes the conflict, who likes the controversy, who likes the click, who likes the head-on collisions and likes the courage. But make sure that the fight is for the right thing and that the courage is for the Lord. 
and they'll devote themselves, he says, to demons. The reason that some people are so popular, they'll have very small ministries, very small churches, very small impact, but very big platform, is because Satan and demons have figured out algorithms, they have figured out social media platforms, and ultimately at the end of the day, if they're going to do anti-ministry, then Satan and demons are going to help them be very effective in that. And this becomes very deadly. I've been doing this long enough. I've been a pastor 30 years, senior pastor 27 years. There is a long list of devastating people that I pray for that they were pastors and then they became apostates. They were Bible teachers and now they become Bible deconstructors and critics. They were people who got married and loved the Lord and did marriages and they committed adultery and now they're officiating same-sex marriages or living a swinger lifestyle. It's just, it's craziness if you're in ministry long enough how hard and fast you see some people depart and behind it all he says it is demonic. And here's what he says ultimately is the root cause the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's strong language. They're insincere. They may be slick, they may be polished, and just beware of the latest trend or book or influencer or you know YouTube trender, just be very wary. Uh, because what these people will do, they will go up fast and they will come down hard because they're not rooted in the truth and filled with the spirit. And he says it's insincere. They're just saying whatever promotes them doesn't necessarily promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says they're liars. They're more likely to tell you what is untrue than what is true. And their consciences are seared, meaning it doesn't bother them anymore. Um, you know, if you've ever burned, let's say, a finger, uh, all of a sudden you've lost all sensitivity. You can't feel anything. And what he says is they've done that to their conscience. They have seared their conscience. Like, that doesn't bother you. That doesn't trouble you. The Holy Spirit doesn't convict you. you you're not, um, you, you sleep well at night. You cash that check. You repost that thing. You feel good about that? Yeah. And if you're a person that has a conscience, you assume that if they're doing things, uh, they must be, you know, integrous. No, if their conscience is seared, nothing bothers them. And then he gives some case studies. Um, he says, number one, they mess up marriage. Well, marriage has been messed up in our day. In their day, they forbid marriage. He says, in our day, we marry two dudes or two chicks or two people who go into, you know, a plastic surgeon and do Humpty Dumpty meets, you know, Miss Humpty Dumpty and they're swapping parts. It's going to be polygamy in our lifetime, messing up marriage. It's going to be the age of accountability and and, uh, and, and, and the age of uh, consent um, for sexuality. And so it's messing up marriage. So he says, you know, demons are involved when people are screwing around with marriage. That's happening. In addition, the doctrine of demons in that day was the forbidding of marriage. And I was raised Catholic, but to have an entire wing of Christian faith devoted to the forbidding of marriage is demonic. And there are Catholics that love Jesus, and there are priests that love Jesus. And within the Catholic Church, there are certainly some more devoted believers than there are even within mainline Protestantism or evangelicalism. But if by definition you forbid people to marry, he says that's the doctrine of demons. And this would explain why within the Catholic Church, which did start with married priests, by the way, and Peter, they would say, is their founder and head, and he was married. At least he had a mother-in-law. I don't know any guy who gets a mother-in-law without a wife. It says in Corinthians, he got a mother-in-law. I've never met a young man, like, I'm not looking for a wife, but I'm really excited about the mother-in-law. That's what I'm in the deal for. I've never seen that guy. If you find him, you know, take him home. Don't let him drive. He's drunk. But anyways, 
the way this all works itself out is within the Catholic Church. It's like, here's what we're looking for. Guys who will never marry, never have sex, never make money, never own property, and live at the church as a chaste, broke virgin in a dress. And then it's like, oh my gosh, these men are not sexually healthy. Well, duh. You're not going to get the first round draft picks if that is the job description. And so, you know, the entire Catholic Church has really hampered its leadership. And of course, there are men like Elijah and Paul and Jesus um, and Jeremiah who are single, and God does give some men that ability. But to say that all of our leaders need to be unmarried is to embrace a doctrine of demons, which is why you don't get the best men. Also, in addition to demons messing with marriage, then they get legalistic on Christian liberty. Here, it's food. You can't eat that food. In our day, it's people who get legalistic about diet. They'll get legalistic about uh, alcohol. They'll get legalistic about things that God gives liberty. And, uh, and so what it is, it's a form of asceticism that is, if I either embrace um, suffering or pain, or if I deny myself pleasure, then that makes me a varsity Christian because I hurt myself or I don't allow myself to enjoy. And so the point there is that's not godly, that's ungodly. And he says that everything given by God is good if used rightly. And so let me give you this. I'll give you three categories I've used for a long time. Receive, reject, redeem. Receive is there are some things that Christians can just receive. You're like, you know what? Non-Christians eat bacon, and so do we. Praise the Lord. Non-Christians drive cars, so do we. Praise the Lord. Um, Non-Christians, you know, go for long walks on the beach with their wife, so do we. Praise the Lord. There are things that you can receive. There are things that you have to reject. Here, he talks about demonic doctrine and following people who have a platform, but not the spirit. There is no such thing as Christian meth. There's no such thing as a Christian drug cartel. Um, There is no such thing as, you know, I don't know, you know, a Christian uh, OnlyFans account. Uh, There is no such thing. We have to reject those things because they're anti-God. There's a whole bunch of things that we can't necessarily receive and we don't need to reject, but we need to find a way to redeem. So is there a way to redeem marriage? Yes. The Bible tells us how to redeem marriage. Be a man who marries a woman and only have sex with each other and love and serve Jesus. And when kids show up, raise them to be sons and daughters who love and serve Jesus. That's how you redeem marriage. Is there a way to redeem sex? Yes. Um, it's called heterosexual monogamous marriage. Get married and uh, have sex. And uh, if you're not good at it, you know, keep practicing. That's how you redeem it. And there are other things that we can redeem, like technology. Is there a way to redeem alcohol? Well, yeah, Jesus did. He made wine at a wedding. Um, Paul says to Timothy elsewhere, have a little wine for your stomach. It can you be an alcoholic? Yeah, we need to reject alcoholism. We also need to reject legalism that says, well, if you ever drink alcohol or you ever eat bacon or you ever have sex, you're a sinner. And it's like, actually, that could be a pretty fantastic date night if you get the sequence right. And so what he's talking about here is walking in the spirit 
and in discernment and being led by the word of God and the spirit of God and not external teachers that are burdening you with a lot of rules that God doesn't. Now, here's why all of this is important. I'll close with this. There is a, so how bad is it, right? I mean, how how bad is the departing from the faith, the doctrine of demons, the forbidding of what God is permitting? How bad is it in our day? It's really bad. This is why you need something called discernment. And that is, is this good or bad, right or wrong, truth or lies, you know, for or against Christ. Uh, George Barna, uh, through uh, Arizona Christian University, not far from here, he comes out with an annual American worldview survey, just came out with the most recent. And so this is the average American, just hear me in this, 46% of Americans believe there is no moral truth for everyone. So 46% of Americans are literally immoral or amoral. And, um, and they're saying there's no truth for everyone, which is really weird, because apparently these people didn't take logic in high school, because when they're saying there is absolutely no absolute, um, that's absolutely a contradiction. Nonetheless, 46%. 45% of Americans believe that salvation can be earned through good works. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. We know that's not the way it works. Everybody's bad, only Jesus is good. And the only way you get to heaven is if you trust in the goodness of Jesus. It's by grace through faith in Jesus, not your own works. Only 29% of Americans believe that human life is sacred. Only 29%. Um, This makes sense because in our day, uh, abortion is still the uh, number one killer in America. Even during the years of COVID, the primary cause of death in America was not COVID, it was abortion. So the most dangerous place to be is not in a church without a vaccination, not wearing a mask, singing worship songs, but in your mother's womb. Only 29% believe that human life is sacred. 62% of Americans approve of sex outside of heterosexual marriage. 62% approve of any sex outside of heterosexual marriage. Only uh, 36% believe that God is the basis of truth. Only 36% of Americans believe that right and wrong, truth and lies, good and evil, is external based upon God, not internal based upon how I feel. To put it another way, two-thirds of Americans are functional sociopaths that don't believe in any authority beyond what they feel. Only 46% of Americans claim that God's word, the Bible, is true. Only 46%. That means the majority of Americans, if you quote a verse, they roll their eyes. But here's what's crazy. All right, here's the one. 68% of Americans claim to be Christians. So the majority of people who say they are Christians don't believe in moral truth, don't believe Jesus is the way for salvation, don't believe that human life is sacred, don't believe that sex should only be within heterosexual marriage, don't believe that God is the basis of truth, and don't believe that the Bible is true. And so if what Paul is saying is that there is this pure stream, to use my opening analogy, of God's word and truth and Jesus and grace and faith and life, the muddy tributaries of false teaching, progressivism, ultimately demonism, people who are liars, insincere with seared consciences, those tributaries have so invaded the flow of the spirit and the gospel in the church that it's really quite a muddied stream in the church today. And that's exactly where we find ourselves. So what do you need to do? Here's what he says. Number one, Follow Timothy's example. Find a good spiritual mentor or father. Number two, 
be under godly authority. That's what Timothy is doing. Number three, be in a local church that operates as a family, get relationally connected. He calls it the household of God. Um, Next, um, stick to the truth in the spirit and be one who worships continually Jesus and you'll keep yourself in a pure stream. Closing questions for those of you who are doing small groups and thanks for tuning in. Um, number one, how have you seen how have you seen demonic doctrines do damage? Okay, just practically, how has demonic doctrines really negatively affected you? False teaching, bad teaching, heretical teaching, permissive teaching, legalistic teaching. Number two, how have you seen uh, demonic doctrine? damage your family. Maybe it screwed up your marriage, your parents' marriage. Maybe it screwed up uh, the parenting. And sometimes people get the most legalistic about parenting because they love their kids so much that they go to the most extreme controlling uh, teachers. There was a garbage book some written some years ago called Growing Kids God's Way, for example. And it was false teaching. It was apostasy. It was, it was legalism. It was letter of the law, not spirit of the law. It was demonic. And, uh, and a lot of parents tried it. And it caused a lot of damage to their children. In addition, what it, have you seen demonic doctrine do in a church? Have you seen a false teacher? And this can be hard right legalism or hard left progressivism. But either way, you stay out of that strong central current of the gospel. I love you. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you've got a group, have a good discussion. And uh, if you forget everything else I said, find a church where a man is leading and the Bible is open and get connected as soon as possible. Pastor Mark here saying thank you for giving me the honor of helping you to learn God's Word. In a world filled with bad news, you need some good news. In a world filled with lies, you need some truth. And so, as I like to say, it's all about Jesus. We open the Bible and we help people learn about Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, if you would help me get the Word of God out, it would mean the world to me. You can go to realfaith.com mountain of Bible teaching. I mean, we're coming up on three decades of Bible teaching. And or if you just go to 99383 and text the word unfiltered. Again, that's 99383 unfiltered. We'll send you a link that'll open up literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of free Bible teaching.